0: Lessons in Tanya The Tanya of Rabbi Schneur Zalman of Liadi Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg
1: the Rebbe was asked which love is greater love Hashem or love your fellow Jew like yourself and the Rebbe answered love your fellow Jew like yourself why? because when you love your fellow Jew it's also when you love Hashem you're loving Hashem but when you love your fellow Jew it's also loving Hashem why? because Hashem loves Jews <laughs> Hashem says I love I love you so if you love Hashem you're doing the same thing that Hashem is doing. Hashem loves the Jewish people. And He loves each and every Jew individually. So if you want to be connected with Hashem, you love Hashem. You want to be connected with Hashem, you have to emulate Hashem. Just like Hashem loves Jews, loves His Jews, you also have to love Jews. So when you love a Jew, not only is it between man and man, you're also, it's between man and God. You're also fulfilling your love of Hashem. If you love Hashem, you love what Hashem loves. Your best friend, what he loves, he also loves. That's your way of honoring and respecting him. And emulating him. So when you do the mitzvah of loving your fellow Jew like yourself, you're doing exactly what Hashem is doing. Hashem loves the people. So it's anything you can do. You can do a favor and you can love them and you can respect them and you can be kind to them. And you can say a good word and think positively about it. You're doing exactly what Hashem does. Loves the Jews, and he loves every Jew. Okay, now he quotes the Talmud. He's going to ask the question that the Talmud says that there are certain Jews that you're allowed to hate. So how do we reconcile that with the mitzvah of loving your fellow Jew like yourself? You just explain that you have to love a Jew just like yourself. As naturally as you love yourself. and Just like you overlook your own fault, you overlook another Jews' faults. And you have to love them unconditionally. And we're all one, and we're all connected. And this is the essence of the whole Tejah. Because the whole pr- essence of the Tejah is that you connect with your soul. And once you connect with your soul... You see the soul in your fellow Jew, and therefore, you love them. And the entire Torah is to belong, to connect, to be part of the Jewish whole, to be the whole, which is greater than the sum total of its parts, no matter how great an individual is. It's only when you plug into the whole Jewish people, and then it doesn't matter if individually you're not the greatest, most righteous person. Nevertheless, um, if you approach Hashem as part of the whole, Hashem accepts the whole, and accepts the whole package. And even if individually you're not so aye ay, ay, Hashem doesn't look at you as an individual. He looks at you as part of the Jewish people. You're plugged into that center. You're plugged into that Jewish whole, which is perfect. And, and, uh, and, and therefore, Hashem looks at you favorably. And that's the whole purpose of the whole Torah. So how do we explain that the Talmud says that there's certain truths he allowed to
0: hate. As for the Talmudic statement that if one sees his friend sinning, he should hate him and should also relate the fact to his teacher so that he too will hate him, how does this conform with what was said above? This applies only to one's companion, one's equal, in the study of Torah and the observance of the mitzvot. The sinner in question is a Torah observant scholar, but has lapsed in this one instance. In this case, his sin is much more severe than usual, since it is written that even the inadvertent misdeeds of a scholar are as grave as deliberate sins. But even this general assumption of the gravity of his conduct is not sufficient cause to hate him. As the Alter Rebbe continues, yet another condition must first be satisfied.
1: What's the logic? Why should you hate someone who's your peer, your equal? who's observant just like you, and who's scholarly and knowledgeable just like you, and who lapsed, who did a sin. So why? That Jew you should hate, but a Jew who's not your peer, who's not your equal, who's not a scholar, who's an ignoramus, and if he sins, him you have to love. Why? So you may think, maybe, the reason is because you're going to be influenced. Who's going to have a bad influence on you? Who is going to have a negative influence on in you? Someone who's distant from you? Someone who's not on your peer is not on your level, you won't learn from him. You won't come to learn from him. But someone who is your peer, your friend, your colleague, if he misbehaves, he can be a negative influence in you. So therefore, you may want to explain it. That that's the reason why the Torah says you have to hate it, because you have to distance yourself from him. You have to be afraid of him. He can be a bad influence in you. Because he's your peer, you respect him, he's your equal. And he could rub off on you. But that's not a good explanation. Why? Because then the main criteria shouldn't be someone who's your peer, someone who you're close with, someone who can, who can have an influence on you. Also, to save yourself, that, that should be a reason to hate another Jew. Just to save yourself, I should hate him so I, should, I can save myself. That, that doesn't make any sense. Also, you can you can distance yourself. The Torah can tell you: listen, don't hang around with him anymore. Don't don't go don't go don't do things together. Stay away from him. It doesn't the Torah doesn't have to tell you to hate? Hate is a very drastic measure. The Torah can tell you: listen, protect yourself, because you can. He's in the same level as you, and he will you will be influenced because we're social creatures by nature, and we'll be influenced negatively. And it's very easy to be influenced negatively, so protect yourself distance yourself from him. Fine. Why is the Talmud tell you to hate that person? It's not about protecting myself. Because do you want to protect yourself? Distance yourself from the person. So what's the reason between why does the then Why then does the Talmud say that this is only true in the case <clears throat> someone who's close, someone who's on your level, on your peer? So the only explanation is because someone who's your peer means that he's scholarly, means that he's knowledgeable. And it says that even when a scholar, even when he does a sin unintentionally, is considered like an intentional sin. Why? Because he should know better. He should have studied. He should have learned. Ignorance is not an excuse. Just like in law. I didn't see the law. I didn't hear about the law. I didn't study the law. It's no excuse. It's a crime. Because you should have learned. You should have known. You should, you should have studied. Ignorance is not an excuse. So for the ignorant, Raymond the person who is not your peers, not your level. It says when, in, when, in, when an ignorant person sins, even his intentional sins are considered like unintentional. Because he doesn't know better. He doesn't appreciate the severity of the sin. He can't appreciate you know, the, how serious it is. So yes, even if he does a sin intentionally... He's, he like tramples over it because he doesn't realize, he doesn't appreciate the preciousness of a mitzvah and the severity of a sin. So it's like unintentional. That's why the Torah says, don't hate him. How could you hate him? You can't hold him responsible in a certain way, a certain sense, even for his intentional sins because he's an ignorant. He's an ignorant. He doesn't know. But the friend, your peer, who does know even his unintentional sins are considered intentional because he should have learned. He was negligent. He was sleeping on the job. He has a mind. God gave him a mind. He had the energy. He had the ability. Why didn't he learn? You should have learned. and should have been knowledgeable. That's why the Torah says you should hate him. That's the differentiation between why, when the, when the Talmud says, if you see someone sinning, you should hate him, and tell your teacher to hate him, he's only referring to someone who's your peer on your level. And even that is not enough. Not all your friends and all your peers you should hate. There has to be another condition that qualifies this hatred. Only if you meet this other condition, A, is your peer, and B, continue.
0: He has also fulfilled with him, with the sinner, the injunction, you shall repeatedly rebuke your friend. The word used here for your friend, amitcha, also indicates, as the Talmud points out, im she'itcha, him who is on a par with you in the Torah and the mitzvot, as it is written in Sefer Charedim. At this point, there is no need to exaggerate the gravity of his sin. It is clearly a deliberate transgression.
1: When Torah says you should rebuke your friend, amisecha, it's referring to your peer. Your peer. So if you fulfilled that condition, that requirement of rebuking your peer, you made him aware of his sin, of his shortcoming, And still he doesn't change. Then, and only then, does the Torah say you have to hate him and you have to tell his te- your teacher also to hate him.
0: But as to one who is not his companion, his equal, in the Torah and the mitzvot, so that, as our sages say concerning the ignorant in general, even his deliberate transgressions are regarded as inadvertent acts, since he is unaware of the gravity of sin, nor is he on intimate terms with him, Not only is one not enjoined to hate him, on the contrary, he must in fact strive to become closer to him, as the Alter Rebbe states shortly. To hate such a sinner is surely unjustifiable, since no sin that he commits is considered deliberate. There is also no reason to keep one's distance from him out of fear that he will learn from his evil ways. In fulfillment of the exhortation of the Mishnah, do not fraternize with a wicked man since he is not on close personal terms with him in any case.
1: In general, the question is, how does a Jew see the negative in his fellow Jew? The Baal Shem Tov said that what we see in other people is just a mirror of ourselves. If you see the negative in another person, it's really you seeing your own negative, your own negativity. If you're a positive person, you don't see anything negative. The question is, what do you mean you don't see negative? You're not blind? You're not deaf, you're not dumb. And we just read, it's a mitzvah in the Torah, one of the 630 mitzvah to rebuke. If you see something negative, you have to rebuke. So, what do you mean? I don't see anything negative. And if I see, it means it's a reflection of me. And the explanation is, of course, you see. And there's a mitzvah to rebuke. But when the Torah, when the Baal Shem said, if you see something negative in another person, it's a mirror, it's a reflection of your own negativity. That means when you see negativity and it bothers you, the negativity bothers you, it upsets you, you get angry, you get excited, you get excitable. You can see the negativity in a fellow person, but you see it clinically, like a doctor. Someone comes to a doctor with a pain, with a wound. The doctor looks at it very clinically, he knows what he has to do, and he heals it. He doesn't get excited. He has to heal, he has a job to do. Someone comes to the doctor with a doctor with a disease. The doctor doesn't start, okay, how did he get this disease? It's because you lived immorally, you overate, you overdrank, you did things you weren't supposed to do. It's not the doctor's business. There's an illness. It's none of my business how you got it. You deserve it. You didn't deserve it. It's your own fault. It's not, it's not my business. My mission is to heal. Not only the saint. My mission is to heal the sinner also. It doesn't matter. That's the doctor's mission. He looks at it very clinically. It doesn't get excited. it doesn't get emotional. So too, when you see a negativity in a fellow Jew, you have a mitzvah to rebuke him, but you approach it clinically. It's not like I'm all excited. If if I can help him, then I help him. But who gets excited about the negativity in this fellow Jew? You know who's the one that gets excited about the negativity in the fellow Jew? It's the one who has the very same fault take a group of ten people and they're discussing and Hara, a juicy piece of gossip about another person. Who is the one in the group who will always get excited? The person who has the exact same fault. Who is the person in the group who's least excited? The person who has no doesn't even have a trace of this, this fault. Doesn't get, doesn't get excited. Doesn't bother. Doesn't get all worked up. So if it's your friend, Al Altarebi says someone who's your friend and you're close to him then you have to deal with that negativity. You can't ignore it. It came to your attention. You're his friend. You can do something about it. So you have a responsibility to rebuke him. But a Jew that you don't know, a Jew that you're not friendly with, you don't know him. So if you see something negative in him, it's none of your business. You don't see it. What's your business? Why do you have to get involved in someone else's negativity? Why do you have to get excited about someone else's negativity? It's not something you can do something about. You're not his friend. You don't know him from Adam. So therefore, he says, someone who's not your friend, and you're not close to him, you have nothing to do with him, that Jew, I don't see anything negative in him. Why don't I see anything negative in him? Because it's not not my business. I don't see negativity. If it's my business, then I see it because I'm a doctor, I have to do something about it. Then it's brought to my attention because there's something I can do about it. If there's nothing I can do about it, I don't know him from Adam, then I don't see negative. Because I am positive and I only see positive. I don't see any, any negativity. Like the story, the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, someone came to him and complained. He says, Rebbe, why are you makarev? Why are you bringing closer and you're very friendly with all types of Jews? Even types of Jews that the code of Jewish law says that you're allowed to kill or you're allowed to not help them and you don't have to help them in times of danger. The worst type of Jews. Why, why are you trying to help? After the previous Lubavitcher, Rabbi answered, he says there are four, in the Code of Jewish Law, there are four books in the Code of Jewish Law there's Arachayim, there's Ebenezer, Yaradeya, and the last of the four books is Choshin Mishpat. That's the last book. At the very end of this book, and Mishpat, are the laws that talk about Jews, certain types of Jews, that A, if they're in danger, you don't have to help them. And even the worse, we're even allowed to put them in danger. So, now, so the previous Rebbe says, when you'll fulfill all the laws of the Code of Jewish Law, starting with Book 1, and you'll finish with Book 1, and then you'll finish with Book 2, and then you finish with Book 3, and then you, you'll finish with Book 4, you're at the end of Book 4, then I'll talk to you about these laws. Okay. Now, it's a nice story. What does it mean? The previous Baptist Rebbe wasn't avoiding his answer to the question. I mean did he do the right thing or didn't he do the right thing? Are you allowed to be nice and friendly to this type of Jews? Or are you violating the code of Jewish law? So obviously, of course, you're allowed to and you have to. This Jew who asked the question totally misunderstood the code of Jewish law. Because if you look carefully in the code of Jewish law, when the code of Jewish law says that certain types of Jews, you don't have to save their lives and certain types of Jews, you're even allowed to put them in danger. It's not a punishment. It's a way for the community to protect themselves. When they feel threatened by a a certain Jew who's threatening them, so the community is allowed to protect itself. Now, what if you can accomplish the same thing in a friendly way? Not only aren't you allowed to endanger your fellow Jew, you have a mitzvah to accomplish the same thing with a smile. God forbid, there's no mitzvah in the Torah to harm of your fellow Jew, the mitzvah is that if one person is endangering the whole community, then the community has a right to protect itself from this individual and even take drastic measures. But if there's a way to accomplish this in a friendly way, in a positive way, as we see today that with a smile and with a little warmth and with gentleness, you can accomplish the same thing because most Jews today it all comes from ignorance. They simply don't know any better. Most Jews today simply do not have a single positive and meaningful Jewish experience growing up. You know, the bar mitzvah was more bar than mitzvah. They didn't have anything that, anything that really touched them in their soul, that really moved them, affected them positively, and, and they can't relate to the whole thing. It's no fault of their own. So you can't hold anything against anyone, and, and with a little warmth and gentleness... You can accomplish so much more. So under these circumstances, according to halacha, you have no right to, not only don't you have any right to cause any harm to any Jew, to hate a Jew in the country, you have a mitzvah, an obligation to uh, bring them back with a smile and with gentleness and with kindness. But the previous rabbi didn't even get into that. His point to this Jew that asked the question was, how did you come to make such an error in this halacha? You totally misunderstood this law. So he says, let me explain to you what your problem is. Your problem is that you think you're hiding behind religion. You think you're hiding behind religion. I'm such a pious man that I'm ready to kill. I'm so zealous. I'm ready to kill any, any evil person that's out there. And I'll do it personally. <laughs> he says, wait a minute. Let's examine you a little closer. Where are you coming from? You're coming from a holy place. You're coming from a God-fearing place. You really care about God. Or maybe you're just a mean, harsh, nasty individual. But you have no outlet because you're a religious Orthodox Jew. So this is your outlet. Whatever the Torah says, maim, kill, punish. Oh, here you come alive. Oh, this. Now your blood is. Your juices are flowing. And your blood is boiling, I'm ready to, for the zealousness of God, I'm ready to, to do it personally. But whom are you kidding? It has nothing to do with God. And the proof is because God also said you should love your fellow Jew like his own. God gave us four books. I don't see you getting excited about waking up in the morning saying, Modani. I don't see you getting excited about putting up in All the 630 mitzvot in the Torah, I don't see you getting excited. The one mitzvah that gets you excited is when the Torah says, Punish the wicked. Here you come alive. Now you're excited, you're alive. Oh, those wicked people, there's no punishment. That's, 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 that's not good enough for them. So this is not coming from a kosher place. Let's be honest. And that's why you distorted the halakha. You distorted the law. You totally misunderstood what the code of Jewish law says. God forbid that the, code of, that, the, that the code of Jewish law says that you must hurt, harm, maim, punish. That's not what it's about. It's about accomplishing a goal. Protecting the community from this individual. But if you can protect this community by changing this individual? By bringing them closer with a little gentleness and kindness and love and draw them closer and cure the ignorance and bring them a little closer. Not only, aren't, not only don't you have to, you're not allowed to harm them or hurt them in any way on the contrary, you must, you must love them. So when you have those segments in the Jewish community, they get very excited whenever it says in the Torah, punish the wicked, hate the wicked. Where is this coming from? Is this coming from a holy place or not? So he says, if it's someone that's close to you, your peer and so on, that's close to you. And if you're aware of his negativity, you have a responsibility to rebuke them. And also, clinically, not, the, not with hatred and not with anger, not with, but you have a defect, you have a problem, you have to, an issue you have to deal with. But a Jew that you don't know, you're not close to, he's not your friend you're not close to, I don't see anything negative. What's my business? I, I don't wallow in negativity. I don't notice negativity. I don't see negativity because it's like a mirror. If you are negative, well, you see negative. If you are positive, you see the good in the other person also. I see the soul. I see the sweetness. I see the goodness. I don't focus on the negative. Instead of dealing with hate, you're filled with love.
0: That's the Alter Rebbe said. Therefore, on the contrary, of this situation Hillel said, be one of the disciples of Aharon, loving peace and pursuing peace, loving creatures and drawing them near to the Torah. This usage of the term creatures, in reference to human beings, means that even those who are far from God's Torah and his service, for which reason they are classified simply as creatures, indicating that the fact that they are God's creations is their sole virtue, even those one must attract with strong cords of love.
1: See, He uses an unusual term, love God's creatures. Meaning the only positive thing you have to say about them is that God created them. There's no redeeming value, no redeeming factor. There's no good qualities, attributes. The only thing you can say about them is if God created them, then they are precious and they have value. And, that's, and Hillel says, love them and draw them near with the bonds of love and draw them near to the Torah, as Hillel himself used to do. It says Hillel would see the biggest sinner in the community And he will sidle up with him in public and start talking to him, very friendly. And the person thought to himself, does Aaron know who I am? Does Aaron know about my reputation? Does he know what a bum I am? (laughs) He's friendly with me. And Aaron would make himself oblivious. And after a while, the person started, uh, listen, if Aaron is my friend, I better live up to uh, Aaron's expectations. And slowly but surely... He would draw him near and elevate him and lift them up. And that was the way of Aaron. Aaron would take the life, the bums in the community, the briyas, So the only good thing, kind thing you can say about them is that God created them, and he would draw them near, draw them near. But he says you should draw them close to the Torah. God forbid to draw the Torah close to them. And that's a big mistake that many people will make out of their love for their fellow Jew. They justify and rationalize violating the Torah out of love. I love my fellow Jew. And therefore, that trumps everything. That trumps halacha. That trumps the Torah. So the Mishnah states very carefully. Don't forget, when you're trying to save someone that's drowning, don't don't be don't, be careful. Don't drown with them. You're in danger of drowning with them. If you lose your head and you forget that Torah is your lifeline, and the moment you lose that that connection, not only aren't you going to save your fellow Jew, but you're actually going to drown yourself. You know, the Torah is truth. and Torah doesn't change. As God said, let a thousand King Solomons be lost and not one word in the Torah will change. It's like the story with the... um, the admiral, admiral in the Navy, the American Navy, was leading a whole fleet of ships. And from a distance, they saw a light. So he radios to, the, to the, um, the Navy people in that light that he saw. He says, please move out of the way. I'm coming here. I'm the admiral, and I'm here with a whole fleet of ships. Get out of our way. You're in our way. And he got back the response. Admiral, we are not moving. How dare you! I order you. I'm the admiral. Move out of our way. We're going to crash. We're going to collide. He says, "Admiral, with all due respect, I am not budging." He says, "If you don't budge, I'm going to call the Secretary of State. I'm going to court martial you. I'm telling you, you better move." He says, "Admiral, we are in a lighthouse. (laughs) The lighthouse doesn't budge. The Torah is a lighthouse, and the Torah doesn't budge. We have to go around the lighthouse." Not bend the lighthouse to fit our needs. Let's compromise the Torah. It's too difficult. It's not realistic. What do you expect? Let's cut corners. Let's compromise. You don't compromise one iota of the Torah. There's no compromise. Not even for the sake of love your fellow Jew like yourself. The Torah is unbudgeable. The Torah is real. It's emes. Hillel says, love your fellow Jew. Love even a Jew who the only positive thing you can say about him is that he's b'iris, that God created him. Nevertheless, elevate him to the Torah. Don't lower down the Torah to his level. Don't compromise. Don't cut corners. Present the Torah as the truth. This is the truth. The entire Torah. It's an organic whole. If Torah is 99.9% true, it's 100% false. If Torah is 1% true, it's 100% true. The whole person, you, you don't, you're not going to compromise, just like a person won't compromise on his pinky, on his toenail. You want every part of your body, every fiber of your being, every bone in your body, every vein to be 100% healthy and vibrantly healthy. A person doesn't compromise on 1.1% of his being. We don't compromise on 0.1% of the Torah. The Torah is 613. The Torah will never change. Not one iota of the Allah will change. God, the word of God is eternal. The Torah is just as relevant and applicable today as it was in the 3,800 years ago. We light the same Shabbat candles that Sarah lit. Nothing changes. Core things don't change. We have 10 fingers today. We had 10 fingers 1,000 years ago. We're going to have 10 fingers 1,000 years from now. Clothes, that may change. But superficial things change. Core things don't change. The Torah doesn't change ever. Torah, Every letter in the Torah, every word in the Torah is eternal and real. And we don't cut corners and we don't compromise. Elevate the Jew to the Torah. Don't lower the Torah. Don't dumb down the standards. Don't lower the standards. Even one letter, even one ayod. Present the truth. Torah is an absolute truth, an organic whole. And there's no compromise. What you could tell the Jew is, listen, can't change overnight. Imagine a person who's sick, who's sick in every organ in his body. You have to slowly but surely feed him back and nourish him back and nurture him back to health. So you start one mitzvah at a time. You know, when they liberated the concentration camps, the American soldiers, out of their kindness, many of them killed many of the inmates because these people haven't eaten a normal meal in years. They took out the chocolates that they had and the candies that they had and they gave them and they died. They, had, they couldn't eat normal food. They had to be weaned slowly like little babies until they had enough strength to eat a normal meal. So you can't come to a Jew who due to no fault of his own you know, had no, didn't do mitzvot and all of a sudden overnight start doing all 630 mitzvot. It's impossible. You have to start slowly but surely as long as we're climbing the ladder, taking a baby step forward, and then taking two baby steps forward, and then taking four baby steps forward, and eight baby steps forward, slowly but surely, till you build up enough stamina, enough help, enough strength. You know, we all come from a family of marathon runners. But a person who hasn't exercised, who hasn't uh, hardly walked, a couch potato, you can't expect him to run the marathon. He'll drop dead. It's impossible. You have to slowly but surely. First you have to crawl, and then you have to walk, and then you, can, then you can sprint a little, and then you can jog, and then you can start running. So there are no shortcuts. It's education. It's a process. It's not overnight. Slowly but surely. But the goal is clear. The goal is you want 100% optimal health, 100% without any compromise. But we're going to start with one baby step. We're going to start by lighting a Shabbat candle. We're going to start by putting on tefillin. We're going to start by doing one mitzvah. Saying the Shema, giving a penny to Tzedakah. Starting with one mitzvah, one concrete mitzvah, which will lead to the next mitzvah. Because mitzvahs are very addictive. And there's no cure for this addiction. There's no mitzvah anonymous. (laughs) One mitzvah leads to the next mitzvah. But the key is, Hillel says, the great lover, Hillel, the patient one, the lover, says, L- bring them close to the Torah, but don't bring the Torah close to them. Don't be, don't be smarter than God. God loves the Jewish, the Jew more than you love. And God says, this is a Torah, this is halacha. Do, this is uh, go, and this is, don't do this, and do this. So don't be smarter. But God, I love Jews so much that I'm going to discard the Torah, and I'm going to sacrifice the Torah, Out of my love for the Jews. God loves the Jews more than you will ever love. (laughs) And he knows what's best for us. He says, listen, don't compromise the Torah. Not even for Solomon, not even for a thousand Solomons. Don't compromise one letter in the Torah. And if it makes no sense to you, fine, it makes no sense to you. So much of life doesn't make sense to you. We barely understand anything in life. Don't play God. It has to be in context. You have to love your fellow Jew, and you do anything for your fellow Jew. But, and therefore because you love him, that's why you're bringing him close to the Torah. It's not you love him in order to be able to bring him close to the Torah. It's like a trick. You know, if I'll be nice to you, then I'll be able to... No, no. I love, you love your fellow Jew unconditionally. It's because you love your fellow Jew unconditionally and you want the best for him that part of your love is not only am I going to help him with his materialistic needs, I'm also going to help him with his spiritual needs. As a Jew, I want you to know who you are and to love who you are and to love your Jewishness and to be proud of who you are and to live a Jew as a Jew and live a Jewish life and live a vibrant Jewish life. But it's all a result of this unconditional love that you have for your fellow Jew. That's the end. The end is love your fellow Jew like yourself. Because you love him, that's why you're bringing him closer to the Torah. But don't ever, in the, for the sake in the sake of loving your fellow Jew like yourself, don't cut corners. Don't say, well, you don't have to do all 613 mitzvahs. It's not important. It's not necessary. We can cut a corner here. We can cut a corner there. That's a mistake that many, many, many people have made. And it backfires. It doesn't work. Because either Torah is real or it's not real. And if it's real, it's absolute. It's organic. It's whole. If it's not real, then the whole thing is not real. And if it's real, then the whole thing is real. Just like a living organism. If it's real, I want the whole organism to be healthy. Super healthy. 100%. I don't compromise one ayor. And we all relate to that. We all connect with that. That's real. So either the Torah is real, and our Jewishness is real, and our connection with God is real, then it's 100%. And the moment the person detects that it's not real, it's not 100%, he loses loses all interest, he loses all respect, so then then it's not real, so who cares? So you have to present the truth. Don't, in the sake of love, don't compromise on the truth. But you have to present the truth in a gentle way, communicate the truth with love, with a smile, in a gentle way, but always the truth. Communicate the truth. Because if you really love that person, that person could hear the truth, needs to hear the truth, and wants to hear the truth. Don't underestimate the person that you love. Oh, he's too fragile. He can't handle it. It's too much. He'll be overwhelmed. I'm going to tell him that you have to do 613 mitzvot. It's too much. Oh, I'll water it down. I'll dumb it down. It's coming from a loving place. I love the person, so let let me dumb down all the standards to make it palatable. You're not doing him any favors. On the contrary, that means you have no confidence in him. That means you don't really love him. If you really love him, he can handle the truth. Tell him the truth like it is. The whole truth and nothing but the truth. But do it in a gentle way, in a loving way. That's the ultimate expression of love. Don't water down the truth. Don't dumb down the truth. And it's a very fine line. Not everyone negotiates it very well. Many people have fallen into into this trap and and we're lost, just completely lost. And don't know how to navigate the two. Love, unconditional love, uncompromising love, and at the same time, uncompromising on the Torah and the truth of the Torah.
0: Perhaps thereby one will be able, after all, to draw them close to the Torah and the service of God. And even if one fails in this, he has not forfeited the merit of the mitzvah of neighborly love, which he has fulfilled by his efforts in this direction.
1: And let's say you fail, let's say you try to bring them close to Torah, and you haven't succeeded. you still have the mitzvah, you haven't lost the mitzvah of loving your fellow Jew like yourself. Loving your fellow Jew like yourself is an end in itself. And it's because you love them unconditionally, that's why you bring them close to Torah. It's not like I'm loving them only in order to bring them close to Torah. And if I failed, then the whole thing was a waste. No. You love them unconditionally. And you're there for them. And you care about them. Just like you care for yourself. Because you love them unconditionally, that's why I'm trying to bring them close to Torah. I'm trying to bring them close to their truth, their own truth. But if I fail, I love them unconditionally. That's a mitzvah in itself. I haven't lost anything. I fulfill the mitzvah of loving your followers like yourself. Not only haven't I lost anything, now that the Rebbe pointed it out, it's actually part of the mitzvah. Now now I get the reward of at least fulfilling what the Rebbe is pointing out that I'm loving your fellow Jew unconditionally, and even if it doesn't lead to any results, so I still love it. There's nothing to regret. There's no regrets. There's no failure. You love the Jew unconditionally. Wonderful. muzzled, Beautiful thing. And for that alone, you can get a reward. There are people who, who are involved in the Kirov work and they, they believe that if they, unless they make their, um, that person, unless they turn him into a card-carrying member, orthodox religious member, they fail. And they cut their ties and they move on and they, they don't waste any more time and energy in that person. And that, that's a very wrong attitude. You love your fellow Jew unconditionally. Period. I love you, and I'm here for you, and I care about you. You're not just a um, a notch on my belt. You're not just here for me to score points. It's not about me. It's about you. I love you just like I love myself. Because I love you, I care about you. That's why I want you to be Torah, because I know the richness that you have inside of you. You have locked inside of you. You have this nuclear energy you have inside of you. It's locked inside of you. It's, inside of you. it's stored inside of you. You have all this dynamite inside of you. I'm just trying to light your fire so you can, you can, you can tap into all that energy and that richness that's inside of you. If I failed, it's my problem. It's not your problem. Maybe my, maybe I wasn't sincere enough. Maybe I didn't speak with the words from the heart, enter the heart. Maybe... My words were not heartfelt. Maybe I'm not as genuine as I believe I am. I'm not as authentic as I believe I am. Because one soul touches another soul. Maybe I'm not so soulful as I believe I am. So it's my fault. I can't sleep at night because I know that something is wrong with me. But God forbid that it should diminish my love for you, and my caring for you, and my concern for you, and my being there for you. No. That love is there. unconditional. And that's why those who study the Tanya and those who study the 32nd chapter in the Tanya and apply it and internalize it, maybe that's why they're able to reach and to penetrate so much deeper. They're able to reach every segment of the Jewish community. Because the Jew feels, whether you're just a project, that you're just there for the other person to score points, or you're a mission, a project, or it's personal. You really love him. You really care about him. And it's an end in itself. And you really love him unconditionally. There's no, no conditions. And even if, even if you haven't succeeded in, in turning him into a full-fledged Torah observant Jew, you still love him unconditionally. And you're there for him. And the reason why you, you try to get him to do a mitzvah is because of your love. It's not, I love him, I'm nice to him in order, in order to I have an agenda. I have no agendas. I love you unconditionally. There's no agendas. Because I love you, that's why I want you to do Torah and Mitzvah. It's not an agenda. Because I love you and I care about you, I know you will never be happy. A Jew can never be happy. A Jew can never be whole or fulfilled until they become a Jew, fully Jewish, become connected as a Jew and, and proud as a Jew and in touch with their Neshama, in touch with all that hidden inner rich, richness and depth that they have inside of them. So it's about you. It's not about me. It's not scoring points. It's not just another notch on my belt. And that's something, if you don't study Hasidus, you don't get it. You really don't get it. You really don't get it. But the the Jew gets it. And they can see the difference in a second. They can sense the difference in a second. And that's why they respond to the Hasid. They respond to the Chabadnik. Because they know it's genuine. They sense it's genuine. There's no agendas. There's no hidden agendas. It's real. It's pure. It's genuine. Jew is a Jew is a Jew. You have a Jewish soul. You have a Jewish spark. You have that divine essence. The love is natural. It's unconditional. No strings in that. Of course I'm pushing you to light a Shabbat candle. And I'm pushing you to put on tefillin. And I'm pushing you to study. But why am I pushing? There's no agendas. It's because I love it. I care about it. Like I care about myself. And it hurts me to see that you're a billionaire and you're walking around hungry, homeless, and tattered. Only because of your ignorance. You don't realize that you have a billion dollars in the bank because no one ever taught you how to write a withdrawal slip. So here, let me help you write a withdrawal slip. It's yours. It's your wealth. Tap into your wealth. Come alive as a Jew. Connect as a Jew with every Jew that ever lived and every Jew that ever will live and every Jew that's alive. And if I fail, it's my fault. I don't hold it against you. And I'm still there for you, unconditionally. This is what you get from learning Hasidrath from being connected to the Vashamta, from studying time. And if you don't study and you don't understand this idea, you don't, you don't understand. You don't get it. Okay, continue.
0: Furthermore, even those who one is enjoined to hate, for they are close to him and he has rebuked them, but they still have not repented of their sins, one is obliged to love them too. But is it possible to love a person and hate him at the same time? The Alter rebbi explains that since the love and the hatred stem from two different causes, they do not conflict.
1: Okay, so now he's qualifying, he's saying, now, let's get back to your peer and your friend, whom you rebuked, because you have a responsibility to rebuke, because you're his sh- friend. In fact, you're aware of a problem, you have to rebuke it. And yet, if he doesn't change, the Torah says you'll have to hate him. But nevertheless, even that Jew, you still... After love. How is it possible to love and hate at the same time?
0: Continue. And both the love and the hatred are truthful emotions in this case, since the hatred is on account of the evil within them, while the love is on account of the good hidden in them, which is the divine spark within them that animates their divine soul. For this spark of godliness is present even in the most wicked of one's fellow Jews, It is merely hidden. One may now be faced with the anomaly of a fellow Jew to whom he must both love and hate. But what attitude should he adopt toward the person as a whole who possesses both these aspects of good and evil? When, for example, the sinner requests a favor of him, should his hatred dictate his response or his love? The Alter Rebbe goes on to say that one's relationship with the sinner as a whole should be guided by love, by arousing one's compassion for him one restricts one's hatred so that it is directed solely at the evil within the sinner, not at the person himself.
1: This is a very delicate point.
0: Most people,
1: you know, as loving, as open-minded as many Americans (laughs) feel they are, this is a delicate point that most people don't negotiate very well. I can love the person and I can completely hate his actions. And it seems like it's like walking a tightrope. You know, if I love a person, then I have to accept their behavior. I have to love everything about them. Everything they do is okay. You're okay, everything you do is okay, everything is wonderful. But then there's this fine line I love you, but I completely condemn the action. I cannot condone the action. I expect something much better from someone because I love you and because I care about you and because you're good. This behavior is absolutely unacceptable. It's absolutely unacceptable. No ifs, maybes, buts. And I cannot accept it. So how can you hate the action but love the person? It's very interesting. The Torah, for example, condemns certain acts certain immoral acts so the Torah condemns the act the Torah doesn't condemn the person I can love the person but the act is completely unacceptable absolutely unacceptable just because I love the person doesn't mean everything the person does I love and everything the person says I love and everything the person thinks I love the person is good But this action, the behavior, is absolutely toxic. It's absolutely evil. Absolutely no, no. Forbidden. There's no redeeming factor. And even if it's done in love, it doesn't change the fact. There are no Robin Hoods in Judaism. But I'm stealing, but my intentions are so noble.
0: No, absolutely
1: forbidden. You're not allowed to steal Doesn't change the act. I can love the person. I completely condemn the act. That's a very fine line. Most people very subtle. Most people don't are not able to. It's one extreme or the other. Either I hate the act and I hate the whole person, or I love the act. I love the person. Therefore, I love everything he does. And to make that differentiation, no, I can love and hate at the same time. I can love the good in the person. I can love the divine spark, the divine essence in the person. At the same time, I can totally despise and hate the evil in the person. And the two are not a contradiction on the contrary. They go hand in hand. And it's because I love you and because I care about you. And like he's going to say, because when you look at the whole person, the person is good. I can differentiate within your behavior and the person. The behavior, there's much more to the person than his behavior. Behavior is just one part of you. I'm not going to equate you with your behavior. There's much more to you than your behavior. There's much more to us than meets the eye. Thank God we're not who we think we are. There's a hidden mystery inside of us. There's there's that infinite, undefined part within us, that divine spark within us, which is really that, that's who we really are. The pure, innocent child within us. That's always there, that remains there. There's such hidden depth, there's such hidden richness in each and every one of us. If only we were able to tap into it. But we don't. We get stuck on the external, on the label. We label ourselves, we label others around us. We get stuck in the behavior as if that's the sum total of the whole person. And sometimes a person deludes himself. This is who I am and is proud of his sin and is proud of his behavior, his lifestyle. Which is completely the antithesis of everything that's holy and godly and good and selfless and kind. But there's so much more to the person. There's so much depth. There's so much richness. So when you look at the whole person, I can love the whole person. And when I love the whole person, I see the whole person. I see the whole soul. And I see the soul that's in pain inside the person. And the person is living such a superficial life, such a materialistic, hedonistic, external, superficial life. And is proud of it also. Is so out of touch with the soul, it's screaming a little nourishment, a little nurture. He's so isolated from himself. He's so alienated from himself. You can't hate him. You know, all you can have is rahmanas. compassion. It just it makes you cry. You can just have pity on the person. Never. There's a pure soul, a pure innocent child that's trapped, trapped in this person. And the, person, and the soul has no... No way to express itself. And this person is so caught up in this external superficial lifestyle and he's deluded himself that this is who he is <laughs> and he's proud of his, of his, uh, his lifestyle, of his distorted lifestyle. It's a pity on the person. The guy is... is it's a pity. The guy is so, so alienated from himself, is so far from himself, has gone so far from himself you, or you can cry for him. You can't hate him. When you cry for someone... When you have rahmanas and so on, you have compassion, you can't hate him. So it cures even the hate. All you can do is you can cry for him. So you can love the good inside of him. And you have Rachmanus for the whole person. That Nebuch. This person, there's so much richness to them, there's so much depth to them. And look look where he's at. The person is stuck stuck in the most superficial, the most external, the most hedonistic, the most meaningless, meaningless part of his life the most superficial part of his life. It doesn't do anything for your spirit. It doesn't nourish you, it doesn't nurture you, it doesn't touch you inside. It leaves you cold inside. It leaves you completely cold inside. It leaves you completely isolated inside. And it just leads to a reckless life and a meaningless life and an addicted life and just a wanton life, living for the moment, no meaning, no purpose, no connection. A rootless life. No past, no present, no future. Just the most meaningless expression of life. Squandering the most precious thing, gift that God gave us. and Just squandering it for just instant gratification, momentary pleasures. That just mean nothing and pass away and fade away and just nothing. Completely nihilistic. See, you have Rachmanus in this person. You can't hate him. How can you hate him? is like an overgrown baby He's completely out of touch with himself I'm not going to condone his actions absolutely not, you hate his actions his actions are absolutely abhorrent abomination a distortion a revolt against life itself a revolt against the fabric of society the very core and essence of society but you can't hate him your heart can just fill with pity, compassion never And when you're filled with heart and compassion and you cry for the person, it evokes a love. Because you love the whole person. You see the whole person. You see the whole picture. You love their soul. There's a wounded soul inside of them. that's crying to get out. It's crying for help. So maybe I can help. Continue.
0: One must also arouse compassion on the divine soul of the sinner. For in the case of the wicked, It is in exile within the evil of the Sitra Achra, which dominates it. Compassion banishes hatred and arouses love, as is known from the verse, Jacob, who redeemed Abraham. Jacob represents compassion and Abraham love. When Abraham love must be redeemed, brought out of concealment, it is Jacob compassion that accomplishes this redemption, for as said, compassion banishes hatred and arouses love.
1: So that's what it means on a, on a deeper level the Yaakov is the one who redeems Avram. Yaakov represents compassion and Avram represents love. So when the person doesn't love, when you, you confront qualities in the person that are very unlovable, and because of those unlovable qualities, you, ha- you, you hate that person. You know, even when the Torah says you're allowed to hate that person, someone who's your peer, and you rebuke them without any, without any results. But nevertheless, when you have, when you arouse within yourself, Yaakov, compassion for the person, you feel pity for the person, and you see the soul and how the soul is in pain, how the soul is in anguish. Your friend's soul is in anguish, and how the person is so out of touch with himself, and so, so distorted, and and you see how superficial and how external, superficial he's living. It touches your heart, and then you can only cry for him. When you cry for him, that evokes a love. Then instead of hating him, it overcomes the hatred. And then you just you have Rachmanis. Just like in a court case. There's no opposition to, to Rahmanas, to mercy, to compassion. In a court, you have the prosecutor and you have the lawyer. One sees the good, one sees the negative. But even if the prosecutor wins and the judge is ready to sentence this person, he's guilty, he's found guilty, you can still have rahmanas. Because Rachmanus says, yes, you're guilty. But have Rahmanus. Have compassion. He's a human being. Look at the whole picture. He's a wounded child. He never grew up. He's acting out. He's out of touch. He's disconnected. He's in pain. He's numbing out because he's such in pain that he's, he doesn't even realize how in pain he is. And when you t- once you see the whole picture and you see the whole person, then the judge says, okay, there's no opposition because I'm not arguing with the prosecution. You're right. He's guilty. And he's has, he has his negative. But have pity. Don't punish him. Have pity. When you have pity, you can't hate. and You can't punish. And then it only evokes compassion. only evokes love. It arouses love. You want to conclude? As for the statement...
0: As for the statement by King David, peace upon him, I hate them with a consummate hatred, reserving no love for them whatsoever.
1: So if King David is saying that I hate the heretics, I hate them completely. Here we just said that you have to love and you have to hate at the same time. When King David says, I hate them completely and entirely. So how do does, how does we reconcile it with what we just explained? that the, even the sinners and even those that the Torah says you're allowed to hate, even those you have to love, and here King David says, I hate them entirely and completely with a consummate hatred, reserving no love for them whatsoever. So the answer is...
0: This refers only to Jewish heretics and atheists who have no part in the God of Israel, as stated in the Talmud beginning of chapter 16 of Tractate Shabbat. Any sinner who is not, however, a heretic must not be hated with a consummate hatred, for the mitzvah of Ahavas Yisrael embraces him as well. So we're talking
1: about an extreme case. Someone who's completely heretical, who has broken off all ties to the Jewish people. When a person denies his Jewishness and converts to Christianity or converts to another religion and severs all his ties to his Jewishness and becomes a heretic and Denies his connection to anything Jewish, then he has like severed his organ from the Jewish people. Yes, the Jewish people are like one and we love each other unconditionally and we're connected. But if a person openly denies his Jewishness and severs himself from the Jewish people, then that love remains hidden because he can't show it overtly because he has completely severed his ties to the Jewish people. He has severed his ties to the Torah Severed his ties to God, who doesn't believe in God, is a total atheist. Severed his ties to the Jewish people. So at that moment, the love for your fellow Jew like yourself, which he explains, comes because we all have the same soul. A person who denies that soul, who denies that a Jew has a Jewish soul, who denies that we have anything in common, we have anything real inside that connects us all. Then on the ego level, there's there's nothing external in common. No two people are alike. We're not in common at all. So then that love is not allowed. We cannot show that love. But even in this case, he he says in the parentheses that it was King David who said this. King David made this declaration and this statement that I hate the heretic with all my heart, with a consummate hatred, and I have no love for them. Why only King David? Because King David was a judge He was the king and judge A judge Could only judge By what the eye sees We don't know what goes on in a person's heart We cannot judge And say that a person is a heretic Someone who we think is a heretic At the last moment There are no atheists and foxholes When the person is on his deathbed He'll say the Shema he'll want, he'll, He wants to make sure we say Kaddish for him Who knows what goes on in a person's heart? A person could put up a front. We live in a very false world. And a person could even delude himself and think, oh, I'm a heretic and I'm an atheist and I deny my Jewishness and I despise anything Jewish. But in his heart of hearts, there's a live connection. In the moment of truth, it emerges, it surfaces. There were many Jews who converted out of their religion. And in the moments of truth, when there was a pogrom or when Jews were challenged, Their Jewishness emerged in its full glory and they reaffirmed their connection to the Jewish people. So when a person claims to be an atheist, I'm not sure. I don't know what goes on in a person's heart. Many times a person himself doesn't really know what goes on in his own heart of hearts until the moment of truth. So you, you have to take it with a grain of salt. Just because we cannot judge a person and say a person is an atheist. Especially in today's day and age. An atheist today's day and age—it's like the story. Of someone came to the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe and he said, "I'm an atheist." The previous Rebbe said, "Did you study my He said, "No, I never studied my I have no time for that nonsense." Did you ever study Talmud? Talmud? Who has time for Talmud? Did you ever say, do you know the Bible? No, I never studied the Bible. So the previous Rebbe smiles. As my friend, you're not an atheist. You're an ignoramus. Ah. <laughs> you know. A genuine atheist, very hard to find. Someone who's knowledgeable, someone who's studied, someone with an open mind, a clear mind, not because he wants to justify a certain lifestyle, a corrupt, decadent lifestyle, but someone who comes with a, a tortured soul and he comes to, to uh, a conclusion of atheism. That's a rare, rare find. And most Jews today they're not observant is due to no fault of their own they never had they never had a Jewish education so you can't blame them you can't hold them responsible so to find a genuine atheist someone who knows and denied his God and trampled on God and severed his ties to Jewish people it's a rare find no one knows what goes on in the person's heart and even if you meet that real self-hating Jew who uses every opportunity to bash the Jewish people public. No one knows what goes on in the person's heart. It's not for us to judge. King David, however, who was a judge, the court could only judge a person by what they see. As we find, it says in the Torah, that after the sin of the spies, there um, was a Jew who collected wood on Shabbat, desecrated the Shabbos. And they knew that he desecrated the Shabbos and he had to get the death sentence, but they put him in prison because they weren't sure what his death sentence should be. Why did he do it? And it says, the Mekoshish Eitzim did it for the sake of heaven. He did it with a godly intention. Why did he do it? Because he felt that the Jewish people, after hearing that they're not going to enter into the promised land, they're going to wander the desert, you know, for 40 years, they'll figure to themselves, what's the point of being observant? We're going to die anyway. We're not going to enter the promised land. So he wanted to demonstrate, he wanted to show them that you're still responsible for your actions and all the obligations of the Torah are relevant and applicable to them. And that's why he made a public demonstration. He violated the Shabbat and he was stoned to death. Now the question is, commentaries ask, who gives you a right to desecrate Shabbat just because your your intention is noble? We just learn, don't compromise in the Torah. You're not allowed to compromise in the Torah, but I'm doing it out of love for my fellow Jew. It doesn't give you a right to compromise in the Torah. So who gave you a right to desecrate Shabbat? What do you mean he had a a noble intention? He did it for the sake of heaven. And for the sake of heaven, you're allowed to desecrate Shabbat. And the commentaries say, no. He did not desecrate Shabbat. What do you mean he didn't desecrate Shabbat? He collected wood. Because in the laws of Shabbat, the Torah doesn't forbid one from doing work. If a person moves, benches up and down all Shabbat, that's not considered work. Yet if you light a match, that's considered work. The definition of work is not work, labor. definition of work is creative work. There are 39 categories of creative work that you're not allowed to do on Shabbat. Because the definition of work is creative work, creativity engages the mind. So your state of mind is a critical, essential part of what's considered work. So if you do something unintentionally, or if you you do something without any, accidentally, it's not considered work. If you carry on Shabbat, and you weren't even aware that you had something in your pocket. Obliviously, you put on your jacket, your Shabbos jacket, and you you didn't check, you don't know, and as far as you know, you're not carrying. If you end up carrying, you haven't violated Shabbat. It's an accident. There was no intention. There was no creative tension. And therefore, If you do work, but the intent of the work is not for the sake of the work. You're doing it for something else. That's not considered work. According to one opinion, that's not considered work. So if you're carrying a Shabbat, he collected the wood and he carried the wood. But his intention was not in order to carry. His intention was he wanted to make a public demonstration to show the Jewish people how important it is to keep the Shabbat even in the desert. So therefore, since he, his creative intention changed it, it's not considered work. Legally, it's not considered work. So he did not desecrate the Shabbat. From his part, he did not desecrate the Shabbat. Because that creative thought was a little missing. In order to be considered a creative act of work, you have to carry and have a mind. I'm carrying in order for the sake of carrying. He wasn't carrying for the sake of carrying. He was carrying just for the sake of making a public demonstration. That's not considered creative work. So from his point of view, he wasn't desecrating the Shabbat. That's why he went ahead and did it. That's why he was allowed to do it. But the bedding, the court, they can only judge, A court can only judge by what the eye sees. I don't know what goes on in his heart. I don't know what his intentions are. We saw him carrying. And there were witnesses. And they warned him. And he carried. He continued to carry. So the court has to put him to death. The court has to punish him. Because we can only go by a person's actions. We can only go by what the eye sees. So that's what he's saying. King David, who is a judge, he has to judge a person by what the eye sees. If publicly and visibly this Jew positions himself as a heretic, as a self-hating Jew, as one who uses every opportunity to destroy the Jewish community and to denigrate and humiliate the Jewish community. And he severs his ties. He denies the Torah and denies the God and denies the Jewish people. So King David as a king and as a judge has to say I hate him with all my heart. He has no connection to the Jewish people. He has severed himself from the Jewish people and therefore I hate him. It's like a severed limb. It's not part of the body anymore. It's severed from the body.
0: There's
1: nothing you can do. You can't heal it anymore. As long as the limb is connected as the Baal Shem Tov said. The Baal was very involved against the, the Frankists. The Frankists were the next generation after Shaptai Tzvi, after the miserable failure of Shaptai Tzvi. You had this movement of, uh, of the Frankists in Eastern Europe and the Baal Shemta was very involved in debating them. And, and, but then when they all converted to Christianity, the Baal Shemta cried. He said, because as long as they were identified as Jews, even a sick organ, as long as it's connected to the organism, there's still a hope, a chance that they can be cured. But once they converted out of faith, like De Svi, and they converted out of faith, and they went into hiding, many of them went into hiding, and they converted out of faith, they've severed themselves from the Jewish people. Now it's no longer part of the organism. and It's hopeless. So King David, who is the judge, who is the king, who is the public leader of the Jewish people, he has to say, I hate them with all my heart. There's no mercy, there's no love, there's no compassion. I hate them. They, they became the enemy. They've severed themselves from the Jewish people. But we, we are not judges. We are not allowed to sit in judgment. I don't know what goes on in the person's heart. Maybe in this self-hating Jew, there, there is some spark. There is some live spark. In moment of truth, who knows? When he's lying on his deathbed, let's see how strong his atheism holds up. If suddenly he doesn't remember to put on the tefillin and to say the Shema mm-hmm. and, to, and to please ask for Kaddish and ask for a Jewish burial. You no, know, don't. don't even sometimes the person himself doesn't even know what goes on in his own heart of hearts he thinks he knows but then the moment of truth you discover all different reality. there are many people who swear you know they, they write living wills the moment I get sick pl- unplug the machine put me to death and then when they're in that position they have a change of heart No, now I see things a little differently <laughs> Don't, not so fast who knows who knows what you're going to feel when you're in a certain position no one knows I mean who, who knows so no one knows what really goes on in the heart of hearts. To find that genuine atheist until the last breath
0: <laughs>
1: I deny God and I deny the Torah and I deny the Jewish people and I hate God and I hate the Torah, I hate every Jew.
0: Uh, you know,
1: who, who are we to judge? We know what goes on in the person's heart. The person himself barely knows what goes on. We barely know ourselves. So we don't have a right to hate even this person. King David, he, as a leader of the Jewish community, as the judge of the Jewish community, who can only judge by what the eye sees and what's in public, he has to respond publicly and he has to say, I despise this person. And may his name be wiped off and erased from, the, from, from memory. But that's him because he's the leader and he's, he's the judge. But we're not in that position. So we have a mitzvah to love every Jew. And even the Jew that you're allowed to hate, your peer, even him you also have to love. And you have to have Rachmanus which subdues the hatred and only rouses the love, when you love the whole person. Any questions? Is it a sin not to hate? Is it a sin not to hate when the Torah tells you to hate? Like your friend and your peer and you rebuke them and the Torah tells you to hate. But again, you're hating the evil in them. You know, maybe if, if evil doesn't bother you, maybe, maybe there's something wrong. How <laughs> think you have compassion... But, you know, there are certain things in life. Like the Torah says, you have to hate Amalek. Yeah. There are certain things in life you have to hate. A person who's only love, it's scary. <laughs> because hate and love are two sides of the same coin. Yeah. If you love someone dearly, if someone threatens your loved one, if someone comes and is about to murder or to maim or to rape your loved one in your home, and you're, no, I just love you. let us I'm a pacifist you don't take a knife and defend your loved ones, if you don't hate that cruelty that's about to happen, that injustice that's about to happen, and you just want to send them flowers and, oh, let's all meditate together and let's hold hands, well, if, you do, if you do the Jimmy Carter thing, oh, let, let's talk with Hamas and let's talk with these murderers, that's not, that's, that's not love, that's not love, that's, that's enough to give you the chills person doesn't know the meaning of love. If you love something, love and hate are two sides of the same coin. If you love life, and so on, dedicates his life to extinguish life, and to take out life, and is dedicated to suicide, and you don't hate that, and you don't despise that, if you don't despise a Hitler, if you don't despise a a Hamanajan that gets up there, uses every public opportunity to publicly say, I'm going to wipe out millions of Jews, if you don't hate that, and you're talking about having a cup of coffee with them and let's negotiate, then there's something wrong with you. Then you don't know the meaning of
0: love. So in essence, Hashem has hatred. Hashem them. hates evil. Mm-hmm.
1: Hashem hates evil. Hashem despises evil. But within evil, there are levels. Then you have absolute evil, like Hitler. You have absolute evil. Arafat. Or the, or the, or the Arab Nazis that hate... Jews with every fiber of their being, every bone in their body, the Hamanagans of the world. These are toxic waste. These are, these, this is absolute evil. And if you don't despise evil, that means you don't love good. It it's goes hand in hand. Mm-hmm. If, if you're not offended, if you see cruelty and injustice and it doesn't bother you, you just, oh, let's all love. Let's all close our eyes and hold hands and let's shower them with flowers there's something very wrong with that. Mm-hmm. That means that a person doesn't know the meaning of love. If you love something very dearly, and someone threatens that, you will fight like a lion to defend that, th- that goodness.
0: Is it fair to say that hatred brings about the love in all of us?
1: It, it, it's truth. two sides of the same coin. You know, it's like a... It's like the bird. In order for the bird to fly, the bird needs two wings. You need... The, you need Love, and you also need the opposite of love. If you only have one dimension, if everything is love, or vice versa, everything is hatred, a person needs a balance. And the love has to be stronger than the hate, mm-hmm. the loving part. But if you love good, you also hate evil. And if you don't love, it's a test. If you don't hate evil, it means you don't really love good. And, and based on the depth of your love, that will be the depth of your hatred. King David, who loved good, his whole being was good, his whole essence was good, he hated evil with every fiber of his being and every bone in his body. It was a genuine hatred, it was a genuine love. People are very superficial. They don't care. Indifferent. I don't love, I don't hate, I'm not for, I'm not against. You know, people who have no position, I'm not for, I'm not against. People have no commitments in life. I'm not committed to anything, I'm not for anything, I don't believe in anything. It's the most superficial approach to life. I love everyone. When someone tells you I love everyone, it means they couldn't care less about anyone. <laughs> you have to know how to read between the lines. I couldn't care less about anyone. I just want to live a life of indulgence. Don't bother me and I won't bother you. Leave me alone, and I'll leave you alone. Live as you please, do as you please. I don't care what you do as long as you don't, not in my backyard, you don't hurt me. And that's all that matters. That's not love. That's indifference. That's apathy. That's, I couldn't care less about you. Dropped dead, and I couldn't care less about you. It. It's none of my business. And I couldn't care less about your life, and you don't care about my life. And that's, that's Sodom and Gomorrah, where people don't care about each other, where there's no connection. That's not love. People confuse that for love. I'm such an open-minded person. I'm such a liberal person. I'm such a loving person. I love everyone. I tolerate everyone. I tolerate everyone. What it means is I couldn't care less about anyone. So, So nothing bothers me because I couldn't care less. What do I care? People are blowing up buses. What do I care? What's my So how do you justify the hatred that people have towards the Jews? And that hatred is an absolute hatred. It's an implacable hatred. You know, the Nazi hatred to the Jews, Hitler's hatred to the Jews, was absolute. There are many hatreds in the world. Many hatreds are politically driven. I hate you because we're arguing over this, you know, it's a fight. There's a reason for the fight. I want this piece of land. You want this piece of land. But then there's an implacable hatred. An absolute hatred. You know, Hitler actually harmed his own war effort. If he only had a few trains, he diverted the trains. When they desperately needed that ammunition in the front, uh, he needed um, re- reinforcements, he would divert the trains. Jews always got the priority. Send as many Jews as possible to Auschwitz. That got the first priority. The war was the means. The end was the killing the Jew. It's not like the war was the end. Let's conquer the world And the Jew was just a small part of it. The Jew, that was the end. The whole purpose of Hitler's whole war of conquering the world is so we can get rid of the Jew. That was was his motivating force. It was an absolute implacable hatred. It just tells us something about the Jew. That the Jew could evoke such powerful feelings, such implacable hatred, such absolute evil. It's because the Jew is absolutely good. And it takes one to know one. Absolute evil recognizes its enemy. What's the opposite of absolute evil?
0: Absolute love.
1: Absolute love. love. Absolute love, absolute goodness. The Jew represents, is the conscience of the world. The Jew represents the divine. The Jew represents the, the godly spark, as Hitler said. The Jew gave us all a guilty conscience. We'll destroy the Jew, then we can live. Then we can live with the might, might beats right and as long as there's one Jew alive as long as there's one Jewish baby alive Hitler felt threat he knew that his Reich could never survive because that one Jewish baby that one Jewish child but his very being his mere being is, is powerful enough to overcome and that's why his mission was to destroy every last Jewish baby down to the last Jew because there's one Jew left in this world just by his being his being represents the divine. His miraculous survival represents the divine. He's a reminder to the world. He's a conscience of the world. a reminder that there's a God in this world, that there's a purpose to life. So the Jew represents absolute good. And just like you can't destroy God, you can't destroy the Jew. The Jew is indestructible, as Hitler learned. His thousand-year Reich was decimated after after, after 13 years. And fascism was destroyed forever. And the Jew is still here. We never left the front pages of history. The Jew represents absolute good. And it's the absolute evil that finds the Jew. And there's no difference in the Arab Nazis today. Those who are uh, cons- uh, consumed by their hatred of the Jew, of Israel, of the Jew, of anything Jewish, the Hamanujan and all his minions. Absolute evil. And therefore they're obsessed with the Jew. Why are they obsessed with the Jew? You can hardly find... Any Jew. The Jews are 0.02% of the world population. You can hardly even find them. There's so few Jews in the world. Israel is such a tiny country, you can hardly even find it on the map. Why this obsession with Israel and the Jew? We can stand on, on the rooftops and yell, we're the chosen people. Who would even pay attention to us? We're, we're, we're insignificant. We're 0.02% of the world population. They're obsessed with the Jew because they know that the Jew represents. The Jew is the conscience of the world. The Jew represents everything that's good in this world. The absolute essence of God. And therefore, the, those who are absolutely evil are obsessed with the Jew. And that can come in many guises. Many people are religious. They're obsessed with their hatred of the Jew. Starting from some former presidents. We don't have to name them. And, on the other hand, you have the righteous Gentiles who also are also obsessed with the Jew and love the Jew. The Mark Twains of the world, the Tolstoy's of the world, the Paul Johnson's of the world, righteous Gentiles, the Sugihara's of the world, the R- Ralu Wallenberg's of the world, whose family was in bed with the Nazis, but he was a righteous Gentile. He single-handedly saved so many Jews. So the good people find the Jew. And those who are evil also find the Jew with their hatred. But the Jew, they're obsessed with the Jew. They can't ignore the Jew. <laughs> Either you're for Either you hate the Jew, or you love the Jew, or you hate the Jew. You can't be indifferent. The only thing you get the UN to agree on is when it comes to Israel. Either for or against, but not indifferent. Millions of people are dying in Africa. Who cares? Who even pays attention? But what page is it in the paper? If you can find it in the paper. If you're lucky. In the back. Yet, anything that happens in, in, in Israel, a Jew sneezes in Israel, the front page. Never leaves the front page. So the obsession of the Jew, because the Jew is the conscience of the world, that's absolute good. And, um, but Amalek will be wiped out. Amalek will be defeated. Amalek is toxic. Amalek is like a cancer. Amalek can't be redeemed. Hitler can't be redeemed. Hamanujan can't be redeemed. You don't have a cup of coffee with our managers. Anyone with such an implacable hatred, the Arab Nazis, those who are consumed the, the Hezbollah and Hamas and Syria, they, they, these can't be redeemed. They're irredeemable. They're a toxic waste. Anyone that's con- with such a hatred towards the Jew and the Jewish people as the Torah says. Whoever hates the Jew really hates God. It means you hate God. You hate anything that's good. There's no goodness inside it. Anyone that has goodness inside of them, the Sugiharas of the world, the Rolu Wallenbergs of the world, the, the Tolstoys and the, uh, the Mark Twains of the world—they love the Jewish people, and they see the good, and they see the miracle, and they see the divine, and they see, and they see the miraculous survival of the truth. They see the hand of God, and it's those who are who are consummated with hatred that means they're purely evil, and they're irredeemable. They will be defeated the 70 nations of the world will be redeemed, will be elevated. Mashiach will come. Six billion people will become righteous Gentiles. And they will acknowledge the God of Israel and they will follow, uh, um, embrace the seven Noahide laws and they will become moral, ethical and spiritual and become righteous Gentiles. They will all be redeemed. The whole world will be redeemed. The whole world will be elevated and become whole. But there is that element, that the, the tumors of the world the cancers of the world, the tumors of the world, which is the amalek, which is irredeemable. the only merciful thing to do with the tumor is to completely obliterate it. Chemotherapy. It's the only, only merciful thing to do. It's irredeemable. Someone who's so c- consumed with such an implacable hatred, there's nothing you can do. The only kind thing to do, a merciful thing to do, is put them out of their misery. Mashiach will come. They will be put out of the misery. They will not be redeemed. They will be defeated and they will be destroyed. But all the nations of the world will be elevated. Will be transformed. And then Israel will be the center of the world. The world will come to Israel to study Torah, to study the divine, to study wisdom. The temple will be the, the spiritual white house of the world. Mashiach will be the spiritual king and president of the world. And the whole world, like in the times of King Solomon, the whole world will make pilgrimage to Israel and to Jerusalem and to the mountain of Hashem to pray and to study Torah and to grow and to become more righteous and to become more connected and um, this is going to happen imminently. We are on the threshold to be continued. (laughs)